Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. This episode features Marcus Jansen. His journey began as an aspiring graffiti artist and was interrupted for a few years when he decided to join the military. The experience left him with wounds of war and with post-traumatic stress therapy, his desire to create art was brought to light again and he began to paint and sell his work on Prince Street in Soho. Since then, Marcus has built an impressive and successful practice. While researching Marcus after viewing his paintings at Art Miami earlier this year, I saw an Instagram post that highlighted a 2016 documentary titled Examine and Report, a film about his journey as an artist. That was when I became aware that he is a Desert Storm vet. Marcus has had many successes. He's been included in several international and national exhibitions, and he's had solo shows in Italy, Germany, and Taiwan, to name a few. His work is in prestigious private and public collections. I also want to mention that Marcus founded a foundation in his name that assists low-income community organizations in Southwest Florida, and he also supports organizations that help veterans with post-traumatic stress enthusiastic about connecting with art. It gives me pleasure to share his story with you. Marcus Jansen, it's so nice to have you join me on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Hi, Phyllis. How are you? Good, good, good. I first saw your work when I was in Miami, and it caught my eye. And then I started following you on Instagram. And what really engaged me was the fact that you're also a, a Desert Storm vet. And I, mm-hmm. I watched the film, Examine and Report. Right. Mm-hmm. So with that mouthful, I want to just ask you to tell us about yourself when did you and how did you discover your artistic passion? Yeah, okay. Well, let's go back to, I guess, to my roots, right? I mean, I, I was, um, my life started in New York City. We, at that time, I was born in Manhattan. At that time, we lived in uh, the South Bronx, uh, Soundview section, which at that time in the 1960s, I was born in 68, so I'm a child of the 60s. And um, we lived there for a short stint before we moved to Laurelton and Queens, where I started school at PS156. And that's probably where um, I was even introduced to art in terms of uh, actually doing it. And it was because of art classes. And there was actually um, an ex- not an exhibition, but sort of like a um, competition, an art competition in the Queens within the New York City area. The Queens schools were involved. And it was sponsored by the Lever House in Manhattan, which is pretty well known now. 
Um, and I think they still do things with art and, and you know, sponsoring art and so forth. Um, but back then, this was in the 70s, um, they had a school art competition and uh, they took the best paintings from kids in the schools. And I had painted a, a male lion that was then chosen to hang in the, the Lever House in, in Manhattan. That's fantastic. That's great. Yeah, and this was a this was a big deal. I mean, you know, you know first of all, I think I think I realized that um, art wasn't just to sort of you know uh, paint or doodle down on a piece of paper, but you had something that you could actually take, exhibit, and people would come to, and it would serve as a voice. So that was uh, that was an enlightening moment for me. Um, I think experiencing that, and I would say um, that that was probably, uh, at least in terms of knowing that I could actually do it, that was uh, that was probably the first moment that um, art snuck into into my life. I bet. I bet. Mm-hmm. No, that that positive reinforcement, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and the mere fact that you could you know you could express yourself on a piece of paper besides writing. You know, and you had some, you had people that said, wow, this is, this is really interesting. We could show it and then, you know, share that sort of dialogue or communication with other people that actually come to the exhibition. So that was really interesting um, to me. The other factor, of course, was the graffiti art scene in the 1980s that emerged out of New York. I was um, being in and out, out of the Bronx. I was, um, of course, always accustomed to it because it was just, you know, all over the place, especially in 1982. Um after I actually moved to Germany, because we had moved to Germany, which was also, um, I think, a, a sort of uh, cultural change for me. I was actually put into a German-speaking school where I had to learn the language and the culture and so forth, which was um, quite challenging for me as a, as a child of color. I remember that in, in those days. Yes. So I think it was, um, you know, one of the things that I think that brought to me was the fact that I could uh, express myself through painting uh, and through um, you know, using that element for uh, means of communication and also for means of bridging the gaps of what I experienced between the two worlds. And so I was back in, in New York in 1982 and I stayed with my grandparents at that time. We, they moved to the Northeast Bronx and I was uh, introduced to West Rubenstein, who was a graffiti artist. Uh, a very pioneer, you know, one of his pioneer graffiti artists back in the early 1980s. He was well known for the lettering and so forth in New York City. And uh, he was also the founder of PNB Nation Clothing, which was a uh, pretty well-known clothing brand. And at that time, West, you know, West and I were just teenagers. And um, I was so impressed, you know, by <laughs> all these things that he was doing. I mean, you know, he had these, you know, catalogs with all of his art in it and so forth. And and it just made a huge impression on me that you could actually do something um, and, you know, people would pay attention to that voice. Hmm. Um, so I think, I, think, um, I think between those two experiences, those were probably my first um, sort of initiators for uh, thinking of art as, um, you know, something that, was, um, that, that could be of some importance. And then you joined the military. Right. Right. Yeah. Then, then I, then I, let's see. Yeah. You know, I went through the eighties. I um, was, I guess I experienced a lot. Well, first of all, I was, I was traveling back and forth between Germany and New York pretty much on a continuous basis. And um, I think what became clear to me during that time was um, just the economic differences that we had between two different, two vastly different places, right? New York city, big city with, you know, at that time, you know, over 10 million people. And um, the place where I was in Germany, where it was, you know, semi-safe, um, very 
um, structured, economically well-structured. I mean, you didn't see the poverty that we had in New York and so forth. And it became very clear to me um, what the difference is in power structures and, and especially economic power structures and how those affect society and how we deal with those. And I think, and I say that because that's an element that I think snuck into my work later. Obviously, you know, one of, my, one of the key things in my work has to do with power structures, whether it's military, psychological, or economic power structures that are always around and that we are always in. Um, so that's something that kind of came into play, I think, in sort of more of a subconscious way until I joined the service uh, in 1989, and I was then deployed to uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, right after boot camp, and immediately deployed with Fort Bragg, uh, the 18th Airborne, to the Gulf War in 1990. And we were the uh, the first to leave in August of 1990. We were last to come back in April of 91. And yeah, I was, you know, I mean, obviously that experience changed my entire outlook on on the world and and my my worldview in terms of how I um, perceive things and also obviously taught me a lot of lessons in terms of life and and, uh, and how valuable it is. So I think, um, I think coming back was then sort of emerging of all these things, right? And I had all these things that did these different, these different sort of patterns, but also different uh, experiences almost each decade that kind of came together. And uh, it wasn't until I came back to uh, the United States when I was then sent to Korea uh, South Korea, and I was sent at the DMZ at Camp Casey, uh, the North Korean border, for another year. So that was almost right after, uh, the, right after I came back from Fort Bragg, and it was there where uh, I started having difficulties with PTSD. I was pretty isolated. Uh, you know, it was a camp. Camp Casey was very isolated. You needed to pass to get off, get out. Um, you know, it was it was more or less sort of a stay where you just kind of like killed your time. You know, during that during that year, and it was when I got back um, that I started a program which was uh, for the military, and it was a uh, Gulf War therapy program, which most of the vets went through. And it was that program that introduced me to uh, art therapy, which was a part of the program and one that I sort of welcomed because of my, you know, I guess, my artistic background too. And it was just something that you know I thought was you know. Um, I thought it was great, you know, you could be in there paint and, and, you know, draw and so forth. And I remember some of the, um, some of the nurses saying, well, you, you know, you have some talent there, right? And, you know, you, you can draw. <laughs> and that wasn't the case with all soldiers. I mean, you know, this was just, you know, in my case, some soldiers hated it, you know, but in my case, you know, I thought it was um, just something that, um, that I could do. And it's probably that moment that uh, got me to even thinking that I could use art as a possible profession or do something uh, more long-term with it after that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So when you were creating graffiti art, obviously your, your head was in a different place, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, that was, um, you know, graffiti art was, I guess the movement was really obviously about sort of, um, you know, being seen and being recognized. I mean, this was, you know, it came from a, from a, uh, a population that was largely forgotten um, largely overlooked, and it was about sort of getting your name out and just being seen. But it was also, you know, it was about social critique. And I think that that social critique aspect was one that, that inspired me. And the other one was probably um, just what graffiti did to the inner city in terms of its environments. 
you know, you had, you know, before that it was very clean, you know, you know, things look very clean in terms of, you know, billboards and so forth, but you didn't have these um, expression of these human expressions of walls. And I always thought that was just fascinating because, um, you know, it really changed the, the American landscape. And now of course the global landscape forever. Right. Um, you know, because kids in you know Europe started doing it very quickly, and I was sort of between because I was in you know between the two places. Um, I saw the emerging of graffiti art in in Europe, and I saw it in New York City, and um, and how it evolved into street art, and and you know being called all kinds of different names, and um, and how it really became more of a contemporary art form. Uh, you know, of course, twenty thirty and 40 years later. Did any of that passion, uh, that narrative, did it carry over into your work? Did you witness it when you first started uh, creating work again? Yeah, I think, I think what, what excited me the most was about, was about graffiti art was were the colors and the movement. Um, there was a certain excitement, um, a certain sort of you know, movement that I didn't really see in the contemporary arts. Um, there was, uh, you know, usually if you looked at expressionist painters, which was another element that inspired me very early on when I was in Germany, since the expressionist movement started in Germany, I was, you know, introduced to that, whether it was the one in Munich or in Berlin. And, um, I liked those paintings because they were also, you know, they came out of poverty and wartime and so forth as graffiti did. Um, so I, I thought those two things were, were deeply intertwined in terms of where it came from or what initiated people to do it. And, um, but I, I wanted to sort of serve as a bridge, you know, because I had these two backgrounds being in New York or being in Germany. Um, I wanted to do something that was, was, you know, different, obviously. I mean, I could never, you know, I, I used to look up to West like a God. I was like, oh my God, I'll never, I think my, my first paintings were probably West, <laughs> you know, that's and I thought, great. well, that's not going to work. <laughs> so, so I had to, I had to, um, you know, I had to find something that was my own and, um, Obviously, you know, during my military career, I didn't do uh, too much of anything. But, um, you know, once I discharged, I thought um, this was something, you know, I really wanted to get into. And I thought I had a story to tell at this point um, with my experiences and, and just wanted to react to certain things that were going on. The other thing, of course, was when I did discharge, I discharged because I was, uh, uh, I just disagreed with um, how we were using our military at the time. So that was, you know, largely why I got out um, in uh, 1997. And I realized we were, you know, doing a lot of nation building and you know, going into countries we shouldn't be going into and so forth. And, and that, that, um, that bothered me. And, um, and I, realized, I realized I couldn't make a difference while I was in. So I thought, okay, well, if I get out, um, you know, I'm going to devote my life to, to the arts. And I took my severance pay that I got and basically uh, invested it into my first studio, uh, which was about $20,000, and um, just started painting. And uh, that's what led me to go to Prince Street and Broadway in New York, because, as the film states, because I figured, well, um, you know, if, if, if there's going to be an audience, besides a German audience, the German audience couldn't be more critical. I mean, there's no more critical audience than in Germany, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, this, this is, I mean, you know, there's no more critical audience than in Germany, and, and rightfully so. I mean, this is, you know, much of the great art uh, in, in art history has come from Germany. And um, so it was, it was good for me to, to get a first uh, spot there, but I found it very difficult um, and uh, did a lot of street shows in, in uh, some of the cities there. Uh, but then moved to Prince and Prince Street and Broadway, which was a corner in lower Manhattan, 
and where most of the guys used to set up, you know, back during Giuliani's time in the in the nineties. I was there in ninety nine, and we used to sell our paintings on the street corner. It was Prince, you know, Prince Prince Street and Broadway, the the same corner at the um, Victoria's Secret building. Right, and art up until COVID, art was still being sold there. Yeah, yeah, sure, is. and it's still there because um, I first of all, John, uh, the filmmaker, John Scholar. Um, went there to film. So he actually went to the corner and I said, John, if you're lucky, you'll find somebody there. <laughs> so he went out and he met uh, quite a few. It was Ivan who was in the film who unfortunately passed, I think two or three years later. Um, and then there was some, some other you know guys that were still there. So he had interviewed some of the guys that were still working there um, and, you know, selling and, and, and doing their paintings. Uh, and that's, that's what I did. Uh, to get just some kind of response from from an from an international audience, which was important for me at the time, and um, I saw immediately that uh, there was a strong response. And I had galleries approach me. I had showed with uh, Strickoff Fine Arts it was my first uh, gallery showing in New York and Chelsea, and, and I met Jeff. Jeff saw saw the work in some ad that I had placed, and you know called me down to Chelsea, and that was a big deal for me at, at that time because it was sort of like, oh wow, you know, art is good in New York galleries, <laughs> so. I was, and this is, you know, 20 something years ago now, but, oh, uh, but that was great. That was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the film. The name of the film is Examine and Report, and it can be viewed on Amazon. Uh, but, but tell us more, tell us more. Yeah, Examine and Report was, um, first of all, it was filmed. Um, a lot of people are finding out about it now, but it's actually been out since 2016. It was filmed in 2016. John Scholar is uh, the filmmaker. He's an Emmy Award winning filmmaker studied in uh, Los Angeles and uh, moved here to Florida where I met him and we've been friends for, for a long time, but it's smaller projects together and so forth. And I think John just figured at some point, you know what, you know, you just, your story was really interesting. You know, maybe we could do something bigger with it. And so he did. And, um, you know, I, I gave him some of the contacts that we had. We have, you know, in it, Steve Lazaridis, who was Banksy's first agent out of London. Um, you know, we have Wes Grubenstein, uh, who, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, it was my friend from from uh, back in the 80s uh, who joined us, Richard Beavers, who, by the way, um, uh, you know, I've known for 20 years, long before Richard actually um, had a gallery and he was still working at MTV. And uh, he my first New York collector uh, for, for the last 20 years. So I've known Richard for a very long time and he was in it. And there were a lot of other people in it, you know, renowned names that, you know, the film was really about, uh, it was, you know, obviously I'm highlighted in it, but I think the gist of the story is really more how graffiti art and street, street art sort of emerge into this contemporary art uh, scene and, you know, how, um, how that's affect sort of this new contemporary art market uh, over so many years. So, yeah, no, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting sort of thing. And John, you know, I have to tell you, John didn't know anything. I mean, he wasn't, um, you know, in the arts or anything. He came in as a complete outsider, and that's why, you know, examining reports. He was really just sort of examining what, uh, what the scene was like. He took interviews with people that, um, you know, had insight in it, like Steve Lazaridis, and, and, um, and did the film. How, how did you segue into the topic of the military uh, during the film? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the narrator, I want to say, of the film is, of course, uh, uh, art historian uh, Brooklyn McGowan. And she's been following me, I would say, over the last, um, what, maybe six years or so. She was part of the uh, uh, first exhibition I had in Italy at the uh, La Triennale di Milano. A museum, the solo show that we had in 2016, and she was the uh, curator for that. 
And so she was part of the film. And um, I met her at my first solo show in New York, which was many years ago at uh, Castle Fitzgerald's in, in, uh, in the Lower East Side. And she was a director there at that point. And, um, you know, she was attracted to, I think, I really want to say more of my sort of um, examinations of uh, sort of war-torn environments. And um, that's kind of what, what you know, brought the topic of, of obviously war, you know, as you know, I mean, you know, much of my landscapes have to do with not just the economics, but, you know, environment, what we're doing to our environment, and hopefully they serve as some kind of, um, you know, uh, mirror of, of ourselves where we are and uh, hopefully have us reflect as to, you know, how we really want to treat our environment, right? Yeah, because the concepts, the themes are connected uh, throughout your work. Oh, absolutely. You see it. Yeah, I, you know, and again, you know, the, the, the three fundamentals, power structures, I think that's something that draws, I mean, that's the fundamental of all of the work. I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, what it feels like to be under these power structures, so whether it's economic, uh, psychological, or military um, warfare, and we're under almost all, um, all the time, right? I mean, you know, whether it's here in the United States or abroad, I mean, these are power structures that are constantly being acted out on populations and on us, frankly. And there's a certain result for that. One of the results, of course, is we're seeing right now with COVID-19 and the whole protest with um, Mr. Floyd and so forth. I mean, these are just results of, um, of these power structures that are acted out on individuals um, on a continuous basis, right? So, um, so these are power structures that I hope people address in also this change that hopefully will be coming up out of, this, out of these protests because, uh, you know, um, you know, it's great. We, you know, obviously we need to do things with police reform and so forth, but unless we go to the root cause of the economics of things, especially in certain neighborhoods and what I say, uh, sanction off neighborhoods, um, you know, the same way we sanction off places like, uh, you know, Venezuela, Syria, or other places, um, if we don't like what they're doing, I think we have to reconsider how these uh, communities are, um, you know, funded and, and, and treated. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. It's important to your your perspective is important because you you know are a, are a vet. Well, yeah, and and, and one thing that I think one thing the, the the film touches on is is you know this uh, the South Bronx was a war zone in the nineteen many people would have referred to it in nineteen seventies uh, for those that remember what it looked like then. And I remember seeing the the, the you know similar correlations with what I saw in uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq. So I you know. This is this is partially also what triggered my response is that seeing war torn areas very early on and later in my adult life um, must have been somehow a trigger as well to, to sort of respond to these things. It's amazing. It's amazing. So let's change on another topic. You have an exhibition later on this year, right? I do, um, I do. At the Cornell Fine Arts Museum at Rollins? That's right, yeah. September 18th? That's right. Yes, yes, I do. I mean, you know, this is this has been a uh, show in the planning for, I guess, maybe a year or so. Um, we're really excited about this one because um, I initially was supposed to have a show, a solo show at the Baker Museum in Naples, um, which was the year of Irma coming through Florida. And that was canceled because of the, the hurricane, which I was disappointed about, but that was just simply because the museum had damage and they had to fix it and so forth. So that show is being postponed until 2021. But the show coming up this September is at um, um, Cornell uh, Fine Arts uh, Museum at Rollins College uh, here in Winter Park in Orlando. 
And uh, yeah, and that show is also, it's based on power structures and um, it's called E Pluribus Unum, which is translated from Latin out of many one. And the curator is uh, Dr. Car- Carbonell, uh, Gisela Carbonell. And I've known her for some years, as a matter of fact, because she used to be the, the curator here at the Baker Museum. And um, uh, Gisela invited me to, to uh, show there uh, in September. So that's September uh, 18th, 2020. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I know the information will be shared with us on Instagram. Yep, sure will, sure will. Yeah, we'll be sharing it on social media. I think, yeah, there's going to be, um, you know, hopefully quite a bit of promotion. I think, you know, we think the show is timely also in terms of topic and so forth. So I think the museum is pretty excited to get uh, get the word out. Um, you know, it, 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 it deals with topics that we're, that we're dealing with right now. So we're hoping that, uh, that in spite of the COVID-19, that at least, um, you know, even if it's just from a virtual standpoint, that things, uh, things will work out well. Yes, 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 yes. It is important. It's very important. So as we're running to close, I was going to ask you one last question, but there's just something I have to bring up. Um, when I watched the film, uh, there was one thing that stood out to me and that stayed with me, and it's a quote by your father. Mm-hmm. And I know you're much older now, so you may not know how to answer this question, but he said that you saw, saw a woman and you said to him, Daddy, this is a woman afraid of thunder. Right, right, right. I mean, and I just started laughing, like, what could a child possibly mean? Do you have any recall at all? Well, well, first of all, you know, he said it was a nude woman in dim lighting which was, um, you know, even more, you know, dramatic, really, right? Because, uh, you know, right. like, what was I doing looking at that, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> after five or six. <laughs> but, uh, but it just shows you my interpretation. In my interpretation, I, I don't remember the incident, but, you know, my father remembers every single detail about me, obviously. But um, I, I, you know, I think, I think my dad probably wanted to... Uh, you know, emphasize that I, you know, I guess always was um, uh, somebody to to sort of read in read in between the lines, right? <laughs> <laughs> and interpret things maybe slightly different than everybody else. But you know, this is again, like we talked about before. This is a <laughs> this is a this is a child's mind, right? I mean, operating, right? right. What, what does a child see? You know, right. What does a child see? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. With that, how would you like your work to influence others, especially now? Yeah, I think I, I hope I hope the work serves as a as a reflection um, and as something to contemplate, and you know something unlike sort of you know TV media that's sort of shoved down everybody's throat. And you can't really dissect it. You can't really spend time thinking about what you just heard because you already heard it ten times. You know that the work really the people get to sort of spend time with the work. Hopefully, you know in real life when they come to the museum and things like that, where they um, can really reflect on, on our current times, because I mean, the work is contemporary in terms of, you know, reflection of, of where we are today. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. and hopefully uh, dissect things on their own, really question, question where we are today and mostly maybe where we want to go from here, which is probably much more important. I think this is a, you know, I think we have to recognize this is a real opportunity to organize, um, you know, one thing's mammals, other mammals can't do. 
uh, we're the only mammals that can organize on Earth, and this is uh, organized power. And I think that um, subsequently, that's uh, a realization that can you know not only change things as we can see now already, even if it's just in a in a small way, but just imagine, I mean, what what can come come out of this um, you know this huge movement, this global movement that just occurred. Um, you know, not just allowing the, the the filthy rich oligarchs to, you know, put through their ideas, but uh, for the population to understand that uh, we actually have powers in numbers. Yeah. And, um, and I'm hoping that uh, even the people that have power, especially people power in communities, um, whether it's celebrity power or other, this is an opportunity to really let that shine. Because um, I do think that, you know, there's something really positive that can come out of this whole thing, but it, it will need a consistency um, and a continuous uh, drive and commitment. And um, I'm hoping that my paintings just sort of can contribute to, you know, maybe bringing up some of these questions. We're on the same page. I'm optimistic. Yeah. I, um, we have to be. I'm very optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Change, the right change at the right time and mm-hmm. enforce uh, globally. So it's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank and, you for uh, sharing your story with us. It's uh, very good to talk to you. Same here, folks. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.